Well, as you may have heard in the news a bit over a week ago, uh, scientists are pretty excited at the moment because they have possibly proven the existence of a God particle, which they reckon will help unlock the meaning of the universe. How's it going to do that? Well, according to Wikipedia, source of all knowledge, the God particle is a type of particle that allows multiple identical particles to exist in the same place in the same quantum state. It is the smallest possible exhortation, excitement of the proposed Higgs field, which permeates all space and which gives mass to elementary particles as they interact with it. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not quite sure what I just said. Uh, which is a little disappointing because as an ex-scientist, I'd actually like to understand this. I'd quite like to get it, but I don't think I fully do. But scientist or not, here's what we can all get. Here's the thing. Here's what today's Bible passage makes transparently clear. Whether or not there's a God particle out there, God himself is far more than a particle. He's not some detached, impersonal energy field out there. No, no, the divine force, energy, who created and holds this universe ultimately together, he is very personal. And he enters relationships. And you can know him. And he has a character. And his character is to care. Look at the opening sentence of this morning's reading. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Now what sort of image does those words conjure up in your mind? Comfort. Comfort my people. It's not really necessary to repeat the word comfort there for the sentence to make sense. One comfort would have been enough for that. But what the repetition does is that it adds emotion. It adds intimacy. Picture a mother holding a crying baby, just gently rocking, rubbing their back, softly repeating herself, it's okay, it's okay, I've got you, I've got you. Comfort. Comfort. And it's with these words that we now enter a whole new section of Isaiah. Not just today's chapter, but the entire rest of the book is going to be dominated by words of comfort from a personal God who wants to be very involved with your life and who cares deeply. Now, why the need for all this reassurance to suddenly appear in the book? Well, it's got to do with the context of what has already happened. Because, of course, this is now the third instalment that we've had in the book of Isaiah this year. And if you've been here for the previous 39 chapters, hopefully you remember that Isaiah is a bit of an epic sort of book. It's a book that is all about God's big plan to transform the world. And right at the beginning of the book, we saw in very general terms that God's plan to transform the world has two main parts to it. That God's intention is to both punish the rebels but purify the repentant. In other words, God's holiness demands that sin be punished. But at the same time, his love for people 
he also wants to make it possible for those who are sorry for their sin, for those who are remorseful for their sins, for those who are repentant, God wants to make it possible for them to have their sins washed clean as white as snow. An astounding possibility. And as the book of Isaiah has unfolded, what we've seen is that more and more detail gets added to this plan. And so amongst other things, we've discovered that on the punishment side of things, uh, that's going to involve God's judgment falling on Israel in the form of a conquest by the Assyrian Empire. It's not all bad. A remnant will survive. A new wonderful king will emerge out of that remnant, a prince of peace. And under his rule, a new kingdom of peace and a kingdom of righteousness, a a kingdom that's going to be occupied by repentant people who have had their sins washed clean, a kingdom that will engulf the whole world is coming. But then, in the very last chapter that we looked at last month, chapter 39, God dropped a massive bombshell. Not just an Assyrian conquest... But another one is coming. A Babylonian conquest is also on the way. And this is going to be even worse. Because in this one, people themselves are going to be physically removed from the promised land and carried away as plunder. Now, that revelation would have been a real body blow to the original listeners of Isaiah. That not just an Assyrian nation was going to come through and destroy all their land and their cities, but now another one's coming, a worse one's coming. That's almost too much to bear. And so here in chapter 40 now, God offers words of comfort. Because God doesn't enjoy having to judge people. Remember what we've discovered? It's an alien task for him. His sense of justice and holiness demands it. It's right that rebels be punished, but he doesn't enjoy doing it. And so now, really, for the rest of the book, God is going to offer words of encouragement for Israel to cling on to into the future for when their time of punishment comes to an end. Words of comfort so that they will know that the conquest at the hands of Babylon, that they will know that better things are to come after it. The passage offers three reasons to explain why better things are going to come. Reason number one, time is coming when sins have been paid for. Look at verse two. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. An extraordinary declaration, this. It's got the the tone of a royal proclamation that the prison doors thrown open. Okay, you can go home now. You're free to go. Sin has been paid for. But just like a prisoner might, you know, come out of a dark cell and be blinking in the brightness of the sunshine, for the, for the thinking person who's reading this, there would have been some degree of just blinking at the brightness of this proclamation. Because how? How is this happening? Why is it happening? If this is referring to a conquest at the hands of Babylon, which in history turned out to be a, about a 70-year exile, how does that pay for sin? How does that pay the penalty for a rebellion by Israel that's been going on for generations? How does that atone for sin, even just of those directly associated with it, let alone their ancestors? 
On what basis has sin been paid for? We're not told. Isaiah is actually going to leave this unexplained until chapter 53. When we will discover then something quite extraordinary about a mysterious servant of the Lord who will suddenly appear in the book uh, next week, actually. But for now, the simple statement that sins have been paid for, it's just allowed to stand alone in all its splendour. You're forgiven. Your hard labour is over. Sins are paid for. Free to go. It's going to be okay. Comfort. Second reason for it as well is that not only is sins paid for, not only is their sentence completed, but God is not even going to leave them stranded sort of on the front steps of the prison, unsure of which direction to go. The Lord himself is coming to meet them so as to bring them home. Verse 3. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. I grew up in Gosford on the central New South Wales coast uh, and I am so old that I can remember before they built the F3 freeway between Gosford and Sydney. Uh, before they built that, it used to be a very slow, windy car trip to Sydney. We'd often get car sick on the way. Uh, but you make the trip now, and if you've ever done it, it's just this sweeping two, sometimes three-lane freeway that has been carved through entire hills. Massive areas of rock just cut through so as to make the road straight. And really high bridges over some of the valleys uh, so that the, the, the road just goes, Isaiah is saying, God's coming. And every mountain and hill has been cut through and every valley has been raised up and he has made everything level so as to come and get you. And it is so spectacular that the entire world, verse 5, is going to just look on and marvel. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. Man, this is almost sounding a little too grandiose to be true. Sins paid for, without explanation. Forgiveness granted. God himself coming for them to bring them home. And all done in such a way that the world itself is going to sit up and take notice. Sounds a little too good to be true. Well, maybe Isaiah himself senses that. And so he now gives a third reason for believing these uh, uh, truths of comfort, Re- a third reason that underpins the other two, really, a-, a reason that revolves around the sovereignty of the God who is saying this. Verse 6. A voice says, cry out, and I, I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord stands forever. It's that last phrase that's the punchline here. That in a world where everything is changing, everything is decaying, everything is fading away, heck, even we we are, 
but the word of our God stands forever. In other words, when God says something, it happens. And here in the context of this chapter, it's so as to reinforce the point that these words of comfort that God is speaking to them, it's not wishful thinking to believe in these words of comfort. It's not a leap in the dark. It's to trust in a personal God who is both willing and able to do what he says. And Isaiah goes on and reinforces this point as the chapter goes on. Uh, We haven't got time to read it all, but look at some of the things he says about God later on in the chapter. Verse 12, for example. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breath of his hand uh, marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the, uh, and the hills in a balance? Look at verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them like a tent to live in. Look at verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes. Look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. See, God is incomparable. No one can do what he does. He creates a universe with less effort than us making a paper aeroplane. And why is he telling us all this stuff in this chapter? It's because he wants us to feel the force that when God says things, when God says things like your sins are paid for, when God says things, he's coming to get you. That truly is comforting because of who it is who's saying it. Little wonder the chapter finishes as it does at verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on the on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Great verses, those. Do you see the power of them in their context? To a people who are about to be disciplined as punishment for sin. To a people about to go into exile and conquest at the hands of the Babylonian army because of their sin. God wants Isaiah to speak tenderly to them, to remind them that although in God's big plan to transform the world, although a a Babylonian conquest is coming because punishment for their sin is necessary, he wants to comfort them with the knowledge that better is still to come, that in God's grand plan to transform the world, punishment is not God's last word. Sins paid for is God's last end goal. God coming to bring his people home is God's last end goal. These would have been soothing words indeed to Isaiah's original audience. But friends, for you and I, 
how much more soothing are these words for us? Because we do not just get to read them in Isaiah chapter 40. This side of the cross, we also get to look back on these and see their fulfilment for us. Because you see, what happened in history is that the Babylonian Empire did conquer uh, Israel, drag them into exile. But then, after about 70 years, the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonians and in a very surprising move, they allowed all the Jewish exiles to go back to the Promised Land, which was terrific. At the time, it seemed as if the words that were spoken of here in chapter 40 of Isaiah, it seems like they might be coming true. And yet they didn't. It all fell a bit flat. What happened was that Israel sort of dribbled back to the promised land in fits and starts. Some of them didn't even choose to go back to the promised land because those who did go back discovered that everything was a mess. Their homes, their cities were just rubble. And anyway, even when they did go back to the promised land, they, they didn't own it anymore. It was owned by the Persians. And then after them, it was owned by the Greeks. And then after them, it was owned by the Romans. And it just didn't sort of live up to the hype. Didn't live up to the comfort of a chapter like this. So much so that in Luke chapter 2 in the New Testament, we hear about a man living in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout, and we are told that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he was still waiting for the comfort of this chapter to come true. And in the very next chapter of Luke's Gospel, in chapter 3, John the Baptist appears. And just listen to what Luke says about him. John the Baptist went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And then Luke quotes this chapter. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see salvation. And suddenly you see all the reassurance, all the comfort, all the excitement of what this chapter in Isaiah is about. It is poured into the arrival of John the Baptist. Because he has come to prepare the way for Jesus Christ, in whom everything is fulfilled, radically fulfilled. Think about some of the things that we've already pointed out in this chapter. God coming for his people. Well, in Jesus Christ, God truly does come in the flesh to prepare and bring his people home. For sin has been paid for, fully paid for now, through Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf. And in so doing those things, in so fulfilling the words of this chapter, the comfort of Isaiah chapter 40 wonderfully becomes our comfort because of Jesus. And the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, says to you and I as followers of Jesus, it's okay. Sins have been paid for. I've come for you. Comfort. Comfort. 
Friends, if you don't hear anything else this morning, please know that God is not a particle or a force or a mathematical model. He's deeply relational. And he wants to be involved in our lives. And he cares enormously for his people. And if you are sitting out there at the moment and you're feeling a little unmoved by that, if you're sort of failing to feel the force of the comfort from today's reading, can I suggest a very practical thing for you to do this week? Go and sit in on a few funerals. And I don't mean that. Please don't mishear this. I'm not meaning that in a disrespectful or an insensitive way to the people involved. But go to some funerals and listen to the sorts of things we say to each other when people don't know anything about Jesus but they're trying to come to terms with death. God must have wanted one more angel with him. He's in a better place now. She's up there looking down on us, smiling. He's probably up there now having a good laugh with his mates and sharing a beer with God. Friends, as well-meaning as those things might be, that's not comfort. But when the God who marked off the heavens with the breadth of his hand... When the God who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them by name, when the God who is enthroned above the circle of the earth says, when that God says, it's okay. Your sin has been paid for. I'm coming for you. It'll be okay. When that God sends his only son to achieve that, That's comfort. I'll pray. Father, thank you for these words of reassurance in your word. Thank you most of all for their fulfilment in Jesus Christ so that even though we don't deserve it, our sin has been paid for. And you have indeed come and prepared a place for us. Father, thank you for the assurance that these words wash into our lives with. And so, Lord, we pray that as your people, as followers of Jesus, as those whom you have called out into your, into your kingdom, that you would flood us with the comfort that these words intend. Amen.